This week on the Back Table Podcast. If we don't own the patient ourselves, which is going to be a tall order for obese patients, we at least have to recognize that it's a multidisciplinary team that's going to take care of the patient best. Uh, and, you know, I know I keep going back to this well, but we know how to do this. We know how to be part of a multidisciplinary team. We know how to hold conferences and uh, decide what is the best therapy for each individual patient. And so we'll have to do that here as well. Hello, everyone, and welcome back to the Backtable podcast. Backtable is your resource to connect with your IR colleagues and learn tips, techniques, and the ins and outs of the devices in your cabinets. As a reminder to our listeners, our recently updated and free app is easy to download on the iTunes store. You can also find us at backtable.com and on Twitter at underscore backtable. For today's episode, I'm excited to welcome David Prologo to discuss bariatric artery embolization, or BAE, uh, Dr. Prologo's training background and practice model offer a unique perspective to help us get a better grasp on the current status of this procedure and its future potential as a therapeutic option for obesity. So, David, first of all, thank you for joining us today. Thank you for having me. Thank you both for doing this as well. It's our pleasure. We're thrilled to have you on here. So, I don't think I'm going out on a limb here to suggest that you're probably the only IR in the United States, at least, with dual board certification in both IR and obesity medicine. Uh, you also have a fascinating and <laughs> Very effective website, which our listeners can find at www.catchingpoint.com. So with that in mind, uh, could you just tell us a little bit about your journey following fellowship to where you are today, including what your practice currently looks like? Uh, Sure, absolutely. Uh, Thank you for asking. So I had a little bit of of an unusual uh, route to this podcast today. I'll, I'll try to make it short. I had a fellowship director in Cleveland who uh, was interested in pain, and I had a personal interest in uh, in fitness, weight loss, uh, dieting, and that sort of thing. So those two things were happening in parallel. So in my professional life then, uh, I went on to have an interventional radiology career, which is almost entirely uh, comprised of pain and pain interventions and pain research. And I only bring that up because... Uh, along the way, we began to use our interventional radiology uh, skill set for the cryoablation of nerves or cryoneurolysis for the treatment of pain. And uh, while all of that was happening, uh, I was pursuing an obesity medicine certification uh, in parallel for different reasons. Uh, you mentioned the website, and I also wrote a book and a weight loss and fitness program and became sort of... Um, almost obsessed, I guess, with the, uh, with the phenomenon of diet failures. So uh, I promise to bring all this together in a minute. So as I'm uh, becoming more and more interested and, and more and more uh, down the road trying to investigate and understand why the majority of folks cannot stay on a diet, uh, in my day job, I'm also uh, starting to have some success on a research and clinical standpoint with the percutaneous image-guided cryoablation of nerves. So those two things then came together with uh, this new study, which is the percutaneous CT-guided cryovagotomy study or percutaneous cryoneurolysis of the vagus nerve at the GE junction for management of mild to moderate obesity. So so hopefully you can see how how those came together. And if that's sort of the, the apex of our triangle, then it's almost a few steps back that I became interested in bariatric artery embolization and tried to learn from uh, our colleagues who have pioneered that procedure. Uh, So it's, it's almost, um, 
It came on later for me. Now that we understand how and why obesity has become a focus of your practice, uh, let's step back for a second and talk about how uh, interventional radiology might fit into the clinical landscape for obesity. Mainly, like, what are the needs or the gaps in the care of these patients that we might be able to bridge? So that, that's such a great question, right? So in the, the low-hanging fruit uh, is that what do, we, what do we always do as interventional radiologists? We, uh, we identify a problem and we find ways to do them percutaneously, more efficiently, uh, safer, and so on. And so that's the first place where we can fit in and bridge the gap between uh, what is essentially a failing uh, obesity medicine, obesity management system, uh, and a huge growing problem, which is a major um, a major burden for the healthcare system. So, so the first place we can we can fit in is by doing what we do, right? Taking the uh, surgical procedures, taking an understanding of the pathophysiology, and finding out where we can uh, target anatomical structures such as the vagus nerve, for example. Uh, or other percutaneous things, such as the bariatric artery embolization. Uh, and we can offer minimally invasive procedures to accelerate these uh, patients' recovery from their obese state. That's right in line with what uh, you know I had expected. I mean, our field has a very long history of finding ways to do things better. Um, so now focusing on bariatric artery embolization, uh, before we get into your experience with the procedure, I was hoping you could just shed some light on the current status of the procedure, both nationally and internationally. And tell us about what remaining hurdles stand in the way of this becoming a mainstream procedure. Okay, uh, sure. So I think, I think the first thing that I want to say in response to that question is that uh, our colleagues, Cliff Weiss and, and Arvind Arapali and, and, the, and on those in the group at Dayton are the ones who are truly pioneering this procedure. They are the ones who are uh, out there taking chances, out there taking care of patients, out there pushing the envelope and blazing the trail for us. So whatever I do say uh, is just uh, is just my experience in their shadow. Uh, that said, uh, the remaining hurdles really are to uh, number one protect this procedure, right? So uh, my obesity medicine certification is, of course, a personal interest of mine. But it's also a defense against what will be a relatively valid criticism at some point, right? At some point, uh, it's going to emerge that uh, we're catheter jockeys or needle jockeys, and we found a way to target the ghrelin-producing cells technically, uh, but we really don't understand what we're doing, right? And so I think it's going to be so important for us to recognize that as a hurdle and educate ourselves uh, in the whole picture, in the the whole disease, so that we can manage the patients, which again, this is what we want to do, right? We want to take patients with peripheral arterial disease or or uh, cancer involved in the liver, and we want to take care of them from the day they walk into our hospital, into our offices, uh, until either their disease is cured uh, or they don't need us anymore. So, so that's hurdle number one: educating ourselves about the pathophysiology of a complex disease, so that we can play a valuable role uh, and we don't get the procedure taken from us. Uh, the second one, then, is going to be evolution of the procedure. All the time, people are inventing and, and innovating, and from there, improving and iterating on, on procedures. And my guess is the same thing is going to happen with bariatric artery embolization. So we'll have to keep our minds open uh, and keep our, our uh, antennae 
on the evolution of the procedure so that uh, we are doing it safely. Yeah, and I think you hit the nail on the head and you bring up some very important points. I mean, I think protection is a big issue in our field. As we know, we've lost a lot of procedures in different regions. Um, And so, you know, getting a good hold on this is key, uh, especially, you know, in a field like bariatrics where we're seeing more and more complications from surgeries. We go farther and farther out. Um, Right. And like most things, Mike, um, we if if we don't own the patient ourselves, which is going to be a tall order for obese patients, we at least have to recognize that it's a multidisciplinary team that's going to take care of the patient best. Uh, And, you know, I know I keep going back to this well, but we know how to do this. We know how to be part of a multidisciplinary team. We know how to hold conferences and uh, decide what is the best therapy for each individual patient. And so we'll have to do that here as well. You're probably more plugged into the clinical domain and routine management of these patients than most of us. I mean, you see these patients on a regular basis. So how did you find your way doing this procedure? You know, tell us about your experience with this, like how you became involved and, and what its role is in your practice today. So, so this is another very important point, and this is where I hope I don't disappoint you. I'm not doing this procedure clinically, and I think it's important for us to... Um, hold off on doing the procedure clinically until we have the evidence gathered uh, in trials, the evidence gathered under the auspice of IRB and the FDA, uh, so that we know we're delivering this care safely. So the bariatric artery embolization procedure at our institution is only done under IRB and IDE regulation uh, in an attempt to accumulate pilot data so that we can further our understanding of the procedure by performing randomized prospective controlled trials, as well as trials with uh, modifications such as additional medicine. Okay. So you bring up another important point. I mean, focusing on the data that we have now, I mean, where does it stand? What does it tell us? So what we have now is feasibility evidence, right? We have evidence that we can do this procedure. We have preliminary safety evidence, meaning that uh, we can do this procedure, and it's probably a safe thing to do. However, statistically speaking, we don't have the numbers to say, A, that it's definitely safe, and or B, that it's efficacious. So as we talk to one another, talk to our colleagues about the process of translating any new procedure to, uh, to mainstream use or disseminating any new procedure, we've got to remember to follow that order. We've got to remember to follow the feasibility slash preliminary data phase uh, to our safety phase, to our efficacy phase. And I think right now we're at the tail end of the safety phase. Okay. Okay. That makes we sense. Need more, we need more numbers um, is, the, is the bottom line. And, and we need them under IRBs and done in a structured fashion. And so, you know, of course we don't have those numbers now, but it's undeniable that this is a hot topic and it certainly must be in uh the bariatric community. And so as a member of the American Society of Bariatric Physicians, among other societies, you know, you're connected with these people and you're privy to discussions that rarely reach the average IR. So generally speaking, how is this being received elsewhere in the bariatric community, including the surgeons? So this is, we can draw a lot of parallels between uh, interventional pain management and interventional management of obesity to answer that question. The surgeons right now are, um, are paying their bills with these efficacious bypass uh, surgeries and uh, other interventional 
uh, sorry, other surgical approaches to manage obesity. And I don't mean to say that in a bad way, um, but they don't have a lot of interest in giving away the patients that qualify and are covered for bariatric surgery, which is in itself a safe and efficacious procedure. So uh, there are a few ways that we can bridge that gap. The first one is through research. I think that we, instead of having an adversarial relationship, we can have a collaborative relationship by uh, having a shared vision through research. So if we can engage the surgeons and say, there's a role for this procedure, help me define it, right? It's not every patient that comes in, but help me understand and define who needs this procedure. Is it the people who don't qualify for surgery at this point, and we can maybe uh, get them down so that they're in the BMI, or more likely, and this is purely my opinion, more likely it's the people who don't qualify for surgery on the other end. It's the BMI 30 to 35 people who ultimately will benefit from this procedure as almost a prophylactic intervention. So um, overall, I would say they are hesitant. Uh, and, I, and I will also tell you that the obesity medicine doctors, the medicine side, are also hesitant. And the really? reason that is that uh, these systems are redundant, right? These are complicated redundant systems. The Grayland production in, uh, uh, in the gastric fundus is one place, right? Grayland's also produced by, of course, the vagus nerve, uh, and, and it's also produced in the gut. And so there are redundant systems, and it may be that the body will compensate or even overcompensate uh, for the decrease in Grayland. Now, I don't think that's true, uh, but just to sort of answer the question, how is the uh, medical surgical obesity community looking at this procedure as is? Okay. Uh, so, David, I'd now like to take this opportunity to shift gears just a little bit and get into some of the technical details of bariatric embolization. I think probably the best way to jump into this is to have you walk me through a standard case from, you know, all the way from access to closure, including the equipment you use. Now, understand this is investigational and, and to some degree, you know, it's, it's probably hard to develop a routine, but could you kind of walk us through a case? Yeah, absolutely. I think uh, before you get a patient on the table, it's important to consider patient selection, right? And that will be important going forward. Now, uh, the patient selection criteria now uh, for most people who are doing these on trial are relatively detailed on the exclusion criteria side. Uh, I believe the radiology paper published by Dr. Weiss et al. has 20-some exclusion criteria. Uh, and then inclusion criteria uh, that include a, a BMI of, I think, greater than 35, if I'm not misquoting their uh, their inclusion criteria. I'm sorry, greater than 40. And so that's, that's a study that's going on. Now, from my side, uh, our inclusion criteria, we have an IRB written and an IDE approved for bariatric artery embolization in patients with a BMI 30 to 35. So we are targeting a different uh, population of patients than have been uh, studied so far. And so our patient selection is a, is a little bit different as far as that goes. The exclusion criteria are very similar, uh, sort of things you think about with any procedure, and then uh, things like history of peptic ulcer disease, risk of peptic ulcer disease, uh, prior uh, intervention to manage obesity. These things are all exclude the patient. So that's one thing those, to think about, of course, before you put the patient on the table. The second thing to think about is what imaging do we have before we put the patient on the table? And it's important, I think, uh, there's unanimous agreement, uh, I think, that uh, a CTA is warranted before we bring a patient to the angio suite for a potential bariatric artery embolization to define the anatomy and provide us a roadmap 
uh, and potentially exclude patients with um, unfavorable anatomy. Once all of that is done, uh, and we've seen the patient, of course, in consultation and explained uh, what we're doing and that we're going to follow them afterwards and understand what other medications they may be on that will augment or interrupt our procedure, and we finally get them on the table, uh, it becomes a, a relatively standard approach. Uh, it's a, it's a uh, for now, all being done by the common femoral artery through a five French sheath. Uh, we use a five French catheter, either a SOS or a Mickelson, to cannulate the celiac trunk, uh, do an arteriogram. I'm sure we have our CTA images in the room, cannulate the left gastric artery, and then in a coaxial fashion, bring a microcatheter, your microcatheter of choice, uh, and deploy 300 to 500 micron uh, embospheres to stasis. Being careful, of course, during the procedure that we don't have non-target embolization, which would potentially increase the risk of uh, duodenal or, or uh, gastric ulcer. Uh, I did forget to mention one thing, uh, backing up again, and I did want to stress the workup and management of the patient around the procedure, but I did forget to mention uh, omeprazole or PPI uh, therapy two weeks before and six weeks after uh, because of the potential risk of gastric ulcer following embolization. Once all of that is done, <clears throat> assuming that we're not on trial, by the way, because if we were uh, in the consultation meeting and the follow-up meetings, we're going to administer um, the questionnaires that are outlined in, in whatever given IRB we're operating under. For us, it's a food frequency questionnaire and a quality of life questionnaire validated in obesity literature. But we bring these patients in overnight uh, and we keep them on clears. The next day, we advance their diet as tolerated through liquids to, uh, to a regular diet. Uh, discharge them to home, and then we follow them pretty strictly. Uh, we follow them at seven days, 14 days, 30 days, um, and then I believe, uh, I'm sorry, I'm actually looking at our protocol right now, uh, 60, 90, 180, and 360. Is there any type of, you know, I don't know, any any type of clinical scores or imaging that you have to get? Like, how do you quantify your treatment response? Is it just weight loss? Uh, so that's a great question. So uh, we use the what is called the food frequency questionnaire, which is a way, a validated way to quantify what patients are actually eating. Uh, then we use a quality of life questionnaire. We use anthropometric data, of course. We use uh, height and weight and BMI, and and uh, and then we use a what's called a PGIC, which you're probably familiar with, or other procedures, which is the patient's global impression of change. Uh, so in addition to all of the quantitative parameters, uh, we give a patient a seven-point uh, scale and ask them how they think their appetite ranks uh, compared to prior to the procedure. And in the middle of that scale is no change. And then there are uh, gradations of I'm more hungry, I'm very much more hungry, um, less hungry, very less hungry, and so forth. Uh, and so those are our outcome variables. And then, of course, if patients are symptomatic, uh, we have always uh, in our back pockets, if you will, or always have a sh low threshold for gastric emptying studies uh, or endoscopy to work up any potential complication in patients with epigastric pain. Okay. Now, I know this is probably jumping ahead a little bit, but, you know, do you think that for the patients who don't have, uh, you know, really strong response, that there's any room for repeat therapy? <sighs> Gosh, that's a tough question. I don't know the answer to that, but my guess is that it probably is not. I would imagine that patients who don't respond will be victims of the redundant uh, systems in place for food-seeking behavior. I doubt that repeat uh, embolization will help in that sense, but I'm not sure. 
No, that makes sense. Um, so now I'd like to, to shift gears again and just like to hear a little more about um, these vagal, vagal nerve and other nerve cryoblations, which I'll admit I had never even heard of before preparing for our talk. Uh, when are you doing this procedure on whom, why, and how? Uh, so that that's a story I feel a little more confident. Now, now it's a, a little more uh, safe space for me. Um, and so I can explain to you how that came about. Uh, early in my career, I was very much interested and active in the percutaneous cryoblation of painful osseous metastatic disease. Uh, early in my career, that was uh, sort of exploding, and pioneers were publishing papers in journals like Cancer, journals like Nature, uh, proving the efficacy and durability of those procedures. Once knee-deep into that practice, we started to get requests for cryoneurolysis, so patients who had short lifespans, who had already lost motor function in, say, a lower extremity, had a tumor that was beyond radiation, surgery, or cryoablation. And the question was, could we cryoablate the nerve? And if we did, would that help? And so from there, we started to expand the idea of percutaneous cryoneurolysis into other syndromes. And I think probably the most uh, well-known is a study that we did to treat males with premature ejaculation. We targeted one dorsal penal nerve. There are two, by the way, one on each side. We targeted one with CT-guided percutaneous cryoablation uh, in patients who met the diagnostic criteria. We followed them for the feasibility and safety that I talked about before and then measured efficacy using uh, validated outcome measures in that space. Those patients did very well uh, from a safety standpoint as well as from an efficacy standpoint. And from there began to treat other pain conditions that were difficult to treat without advanced imaging guidance. For example, there's a pain syndrome called pudendal neuralgia. It's damage to the pudendal nerve deep in the pelvis for bike riders get it, patients who have had um, traumatic childbirths or obstetric intervention get it. It's a well, uh, well-described and difficult to treat pain syndrome. Following the same sort of reasoning, we use CT guidance to do test injections in the pudendal canal, which is just superficial to the obturator internus muscle in the pelvis. And patients who did well came back for uh, cryoablation. We uh, treated patients successfully, published a paper with, I think, 11 patients showing the safety and, and potential early efficacy of that procedure uh, and have done quite a few since then. Uh, hopefully uh, presenting that data at SIR this year. Uh, we also use the same reasoning, the same sort of skill set, the same workup triage to treat phantom limb pain, another well-described, well-known, difficult-to-treat pain syndrome that we can manage with percutaneous cryoneurolysis. While all of that is going on, of course, and bariatric artery embolization is being pioneered by our colleagues, uh, all of that sort of came together in this new trial that we're doing now, which is uh, sponsored by Endocare, by the way. I should give them credit. And we select patients, again, with BMI 30 to 35 who don't have contraindications to a percutaneous needle procedure who have not had previous anatomy-altering surgery and who have failed previous weight loss attempts. We bring them in CT, put them prone, use a 17-gauge probe to target the posterior trunk of the vagus nerve for the gastroesophageal junction, freeze it for two minutes, thaw for one, passive, freeze for two, thaw for one, uh, pull the probe. We use the same outcome measures, the food frequency questionnaire, the anthropometric data, quality of life, and then the global impression of change. 
we've enrolled so far 10 patients to this study and um, also hope to uh, present this early data at SIR. Um, so far, it's sub subjectively seems to be going well, but we'll have to wait for the numbers on this procedure as well. That's fascinating. I, I hope I'm able to hear about some of this at SIR this year. Uh, do you expect that there will be... Um, you know, a good bit of research being either presented or at least submitted to SIR on, uh, on obesity management. I hope so. I hope so. Uh, certainly um, affecting the larger picture by decreasing Graylin signaling either as a neurotransmitter or in the bloodstream as we do with BAE, um, or we're actually inducing gastroparesis with our percutaneous cryovagotomy as well, which results in patients eating less at a given meal. And as you know, there's an anterior trunk of the vagus that we leave intact so that patients don't run into trouble with that. But sorry, that was a long answer. My point being that I hope there's a ton of research around obesity because it's a wide open space that interventional radiology can uh, enter and help a lot of patients. I agree. And this has been, you know, really eye-opening information. And I, I think that this is a great opportunity for our field as, you know, we're changing, we're becoming more uh, involved in the clinical landscape. And I think this is a good opportunity to, to bring that together and introduce something new. Uh, so before, you know, I, I close things up, I just thought I'd ask, is, you know, is there anything else that you'd like to cover that we didn't get to? Uh, the only other thing I'd like to mention, if you don't mind, just for purposes of uh, recruitment, is we have a new trial open at Emory uh, which is percutaneous cryoablation of the intercostal brachial nerve in patients who have post-mastectomy pain syndrome. Uh, so sort of uh, staying in the same vein, this is another well-described, well-known uh, pain syndrome. In this case, patients who have mastectomies for and potentially axillary dissections for the management of their breast cancer uh, get a pain syndrome that involves uh, underneath their arm and their chest wall and even phantom breast pain as part, uh, I'm sorry, that they incur during their surgery, catching or, or direct dissection of the intercostal brachial nerve. So we're enrolling patients uh, who will be randomized following a diagnostic injection to either a treatment control, which is an injection of steroid and bupivacaine, or cryoablation for the management of that uh, syndrome. And so we opened this trial earlier this week, and uh, we're hoping to accrue quickly. So that's fascinating. It's really exciting. This would be such a great opportunity to uh, solve a big problem in these patients. Uh, is that using the endocare system as well? Uh, no, we actually use Galil for uh, the phantom limb pain, pudendal neuralgia patients as well as this study. And thank you for asking. They, Galil slash BTG, are, uh, are funding the intercostal brachial nerve cryoblation study. I love, I love their system. It's it's my favorite cryo system on the market. Um, well, if there's nothing else you'd like to cover, I'd, I'd just like to thank you for devoting your time and commend you for your efforts. It's you know it's pioneers like you that keep our field at the frontier of modern medicine. To our listeners, reach out to us on Twitter. Let us know what you want to hear. Backtable is dedicated to our interventional radiologists, and we're always looking for ways to improve what we can provide our specialty. Thanks, everyone, for joining us. We'll catch you on the next one. Thank you.